0: Hey, it's Zach from Boston Speaks Up. You're in for a bonus episode today. I sat down with my friend Deirdre Satarelli. She was one of my early guests on the podcast, and she actually, since retiring from her role leading the Angle Center for Entrepreneurship at Endicott College, uh, she's still been mentoring uh, founders and actually not too long ago launched her own podcast, The Repivot Project. Highly recommend people check out the RePivot Project. Deirdre sits down with folks that are sort of navigating uh, all the pivots that are required to sort of thrive in sort of the modern economy. Uh, Deirdre was kind enough to have me on the podcast, and this is actually a syndicated episode of the RePivot Project. So enjoy, and please uh, send feedback and continue to send guest recommendations as you have them. Thank you all for listening. Cheers. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com.
1: Zach, welcome to the Repivot Project.
0: Thanks, Deirdre. I'm so uh, grateful to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, You know, I was thinking about this. You you were my first podcast, meaning I was a guest on your podcast, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. But that was the very first podcast I did, and that was probably three or four years ago now.
0: Yeah, if I'm guessing right, it's 2019? Yeah. maybe the end of the year, or, or or could have been early 2020. So that was, yeah, at least probably about three years ago.
1: Yeah, well, I'm grateful that our friendship yes. has continued and, and it's evolved. And actually, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And specifically, we're going to talk about your business, Value Creation Labs, and how that has evolved uh, since you gave it birth not that long ago. <laughs>
0: Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity.
1: Zach, you talk a lot about professional and personal values being in alignment. Can you help explain that in terms of Value Creation Labs?
0: The mission of Value Creation Labs um, is not all too different from uh, the mission of its founder, uh, one of its myself, in that like I am, I think our company is uh, looking to collaborate with very different types of uh, minds that bring totally unique and different and complementary skill sets to the table to introduce new ideas, brands, products into the market. I've been someone since elementary school that always appreciated discovering something and then sharing it with others and then doing things with it. Uh, And so I think Value Creation Labs is... It's one part sort of like a, a core full-time sort of group of partners. But then we also have this consortium of of folks that have touched um, my life or some of my partners' lives. And depending on the project we're on or a certain problem challenge that we're trying to tackle with a given project, we'll pull different folks from what we you know what we would call our consortium into the mix to help, to help add some, uh, add some value. So very much that when the name came to us, we were surprised to find out it wasn't trademarked, which we're going through the the process right now. Um, a little bit of a backlog at the United States uh, patent and trademark office, but really good chance of locking that in right now. So we have a sort of trademark pending. And when we, when we announced the business, quite a few of my friends were, were saying on, on LinkedIn, this is the perfect kind of Business for you to run because that's kind of what that's this is what I've been known to do, which is maybe 10 years ago, companies were hiring me for public relations and media relations, but there was always five or six other things, different ideas, marketing campaigns, business development introductions. Things outside the scope of work, if you're right. talking in agency terms, that at times got me a little bit on thin ice at places I worked because I wasn't sticking to like the the scope. But that's but Value Creation Labs is just not a one size fits all shop. We don't take we don't rinse and repeat a solution from one company to the next, and we don't rinse and repeat rinse and repeat a solution from one sort of campaign. Or, or challenge for one particular company from one to the next. We we take like an authentic, sort of genuine approach to each thing in front of us, and and try to be as helpful and generating a value as possible. The
1: main value creation lab. is like a lever that you can move in one direction or the other, depending upon what the client needs, so that you're not particularly stuck in just say doing press releases or you know doing branding design. You can really. Morph into whatever that client needs because you've got you've got a, a deep bench, and I know that you describe uh, VCL as a growth accelerator, breathing strategy, and design into your future. I love the term growth accelerator, and you're really passionate that that word accelerate and growth can apply to a business at any stage that they're in, not just startups.
0: Yeah, that's right. There's a great book out. It's called Always Day One, and it's written by Alex Kantrowitz. Who at the time when I met him was a young hotshot tech reporter at Ad Age. He went on to BuzzFeed, and he was the tech correspondent at BuzzFeed. And while there, he got the idea to write this book. And he went and visited with, sat down with Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, he went and sat down. He went up to Seattle. He sat, sat down with Amazon, um, and he sat down with basically some of the biggest, most dominant players in in the world. And the what he sort of arrived at the conclusion was the companies that win treat every day like it's day 1 like they're a startup and they need to create a ton of value and so i love that book cuz it's you know it, it it first of all it kind of takes a bit it, it sort of takes the veil back on how facebook is facebook and if folks don't know it's like lots of small teams of 3 4 people just like scrumming together and innovating every day and that's how companies win that's how vcl will does win and will win is thinking every day on our toes being agile so that's sort of a lot of the the sort of mindset that we that that I've embraced in in sort of business and really in in life and so what that means is to your question it doesn't matter what size the company is what stage they're at how young how mature how advanced they are if they're a public company or if they're pre seed funding all companies need to innovate and they need to pretty rapidly innovate and be willing to pivot in the modern economy.
1: Right, and that's why I'm so passionate. Uh, you and I are both educators as well in our spare time and the whole idea of like intrapreneurship. Right? So acting like an entrepreneur, but within an organization is so important because the truth of the matter is not everyone's going to go work for a startup, but that doesn't mean to say you can't act entrepreneurially within a large organization. You have to, if, you, if you're if you going to stay relevant, particularly mm-hmm. in the and these days, and so you know, obviously this podcast is about people who have practices, who uh, help others go through transformation. And even VCL had its own transformation recently as well, too. You want to tell me a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. And it sort of it builds right off that last question. So in Q2 of this year, maybe some other folks dealt with the shifts in the market and felt that a bit. Some, you know, as as someone referred to it, we're in sort of a bear market right now. Or we, mm-hmm. you know, by certain people's definitions, perhaps we're in the beginning of a recession. Who knows? But whatever the economy is... However you want to define the economy we're in, it's, it's not the economy we're in the last couple of years. And what that meant um, for VCL and Q2 is that where we were over indexing a little bit on, on earlier stage startups, it meant bumpy seas ahead. So for a company, you know, for like one company we were working with, they were about to launch their platform. They were pre-revenue. They were in, um, they had, they were raising money at a, at a nice health, you know, healthy valuation and some of the investors that were investing in them were still invested, but needed to invest at less a lesser than amount than they had previously agreed upon. And that was not that's something like, that's not an that's anecdotal evidence, but that's actually across the board, a lot of investments in early stage companies kind of they lightened quickly. And folks who were in the middle of rounds, um, their rounds kind of shrunk. Mm-hmm. And so that was happening at the same time as yours truly continuing is Uh, Athletic pursuits on the soccer field, and so I was playing soccer in May, and actually tore my Achilles, Um, full rupture. It popped. I went to turn around to see what had popped. I realized Mm -hmm. I I realized I had popped the flat. Um, It sounds like like. Not a good thing. It sounded like a bike tire flat. So I'd never experienced an injury, really any type of injury. Never mind one where I'm losing a tendon that is responsible for sixty percent of my ability to bear weight. So I just had my three month post operation um, appointment yesterday. I've been walking for a month. A lot of folks aren't walking for six to eight months. So I'm I'm incredibly blessed and grateful. But sort of the simultaneous sort of market shifting and my my injury. And and subsequent sort of recovery gave me a lot of time to reflect. Um, I'm a runner; I like to get out and move. And so I had to shift the way I was reflecting. I was reflecting a lot, sort of, in the home. And what I realized was I needed to work with companies that had a bit more of a like a safer future ahead, and were more mature, and were revenue generating. Perhaps had lots of funding that was just in the bank, essentially, as a war chest for a rainy day which we're not getting enough of in New England we could use more but companies that were much more sort of advanced in their in their journey than some of the startups we were working with now one the de- decision that we made was we weren't going to leave any of the startups we were working with behind right. so what we did is we sat down with the founders we were working with and we created like 90-day plans where we delivered like the types of value we were going to deliver for the retainers we had originally agreed upon and in two cases Companies couldn't pay the retainers at all, and we created a way for that potentially to come come back our way in the future if the company can can succeed. Right. But with the um, resources that we then got back, our time, uh, we were able to shout from the rooftops, do a proper BCL launch, let folks know what we were up to, and then it was really neat, Deirdre. Like it was, it was sort of like the bat signal went out, and all these folks from my past that I hadn't talked to in six years or in 12 years came through and were like, oh wow, like this is what you're this is what you've evolved to doing really neat. Like I'm at this company with this challenge or this company with that challenge. So we could go into some of those. Like there's but some of the mature companies we're working with, like they have almost more challenges and we're almost more suited to to work with them than even perhaps we are with a startup where we have to wear different hats. We have to be designers, we have to be strategists. We have to be copywriters. We have to be communications, sort of public relations strategists. So it's been um, it's been really fun, and it's kind of creating the range of companies we can work with. And now it's becoming less about what kind of company can we work with. What are the type of people we want to make sure we're working with? folks that are collaborators that appreciate us because we're going to always lead with appreciation with gratitude with encouragement. And so it's sort of those like soft skills in founders and teams that we work with that we're now really seeking out so that we can just really have, you know, a bit of fun and and enjoyment um working with the people that we're spending our, you know, our precious time on because, you know, time truly is is precious.
1: Right. And for our entrepreneurs listening, there's two lessons there. That is that you stayed faithful to your clients who are who are maybe having a financial struggle. So you were honoring that relationship, and you weren't just sort of parting ways completely because things always come around. And the second is about customer archetypes. So when you launched VCL, you had a customer archetype in mind, and you had the, the maturity to say, okay, things are shifting. It's okay to add another customer archetype. And, and that's an important lesson for entrepreneurs to understand: is just don't dig in on one avatar for your customer because things may change, you may change. So be open. Of course, you can't have twenty different customer archetypes because then that means no one's your customer. But you can have more than one. You would agree? That's
0: right. That's that's exactly right. And and you just said a really good point at the end there too. Like, and you can't have twenty. And sometimes we have those conversations with you know even you know, you know clients now where. You got to find that sweet spot, and at any given time, it's it's valuable to dial in your like go to market campaigns around a particular archetype right. or two or three. But yeah, we 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 quickly found that it was it was in our, in our best interest to broaden out and like the because the the archetype that we thought we were best suited for was like early stage company, seed or pre seed, you know, maybe approaching a Series A round, and we could kind of like we could play all these fractional roles so they wouldn't, there wouldn't have to be so much overhead on full-time hires mm. and we could play like chief brand officer bring in like creative direction like develop a brand develop a comms go to market strategy and and sort of like li- like intrad- build and introduce and lift the brand into the market come to find out like the types of companies that do have those war chests right now in a, in a couple of the clients we have, and then one in particular, is in the education space. It didn't exist three years ago, but but sort of more like a private equity sort of play. Like you know, gro- you know, growth capital players have sort of gone and said, "Well, if we acquire these four education companies for continuing education and IT and cybersecurity and, and audit education, and we bring it together, we can have a integrated platform." And we can do more things with it. And that sounds good in theory. Mm. But when you take four companies together in less than four years, there's so much complexity there. There's four different brands. Right. There's four different content relationship management systems. There's four different everything. And so we've come in in that particular situation, one part management consultants, like chatting with people around the sort of disparate companies that still have their own individual identities and sort of connecting with and building some alignment with folks across now, what is becoming one organization. And what we're tasked with is coming up with one uniform sort of umbrella brand that fits it all, but honors and acknowledges the components that were once individual companies that are now components of this sort of like one octopus being. Um, And it's a really interesting and fun challenge and there's resources there for for myself and my creative director and some of our partners for our, from our consortium to really dig in and do the important discovery work and the brand workshops and spend the time really figuring it out because you only get you you get you can do it again but it's co- it it costs money to like really develop a brand and do it right you got to connect with all the stakeholders not just at the top of the organization but throughout you have to make sure that first the brand is it it, it. it makes sense to the culture, to the core of the culture, internal. Because the next layer is external, digital. How you show up, and if you go and you develop a brand with the C suite, you sit down with four or five people from a company, you develop the brand, and you go launch it in the market, and the entire. Organization, especially one that has all these disparate pieces that just recently came together. And they're all like, oh, is that who we are? I don't know if I fully identify with that. Well, I wasn't asked about that. Well, I'm a little irked by that. There's all this risk. Right. You're launching a brand, you need to make sure your internal culture embraces, believes in, and sort of breathes the brand and the identity before you go and launch it into the market. So we're sort of stewards in that regard for sort of brand development. And we always start internal and and then sort of we evolve into okay now what's the strategy to bring this out to the market and we are confident that everyone internally at the company is so aligned with this they're all going to be excited to shoot from the rafters right. this new brand and this new this direction and these new messages that we're going to share with the market
1: well the relationships going to be multi-threaded Mm-hmm. It, single-threaded relationships, you know, and it, it can be very sexy to think that you're completely aligned at the C-suite. You know, look look at me. You know, I'm having drinks with the CMO. But unless you're aligned to your point all throughout that organization, you, you're doomed to to fail. And the other thing, as, as I was hearing you speak, when you're bringing in multiple organizations that are now one, it requires a bit of agility, too. Because you know, and you and I are athletes. I run, you run. You've got to be able to know which pieces to take of all the different organizations that you're bringing together. Because not one organization has all the answers. That's right. So you've got to be able to kind of put your ear on the rail, listen, and then start to pull it together. And and you get and you know times times ticking. So you got to do it very quickly too. Yeah,
0: and that's. The word agility is probably one of the main factors that we get selected over other um, companies. Like mm-hmm. back to the education business I was just referring to, you know, the CMO called me last week and she said, "You know, I just talked to the CEO, he's done 2 brand workshops with you. And he said, wow, I'm really impressed with the team you brought on to do our brand development work.'" And, you know, good, good job. And he, and we also like we're developing the brand, you know, more towards the end of this year, but we're doing sort of a sprint right now to just better represent our current early interpretation of the brand on their website, just to have it be a little bit more aligned with, with where things are at after about two months. Mm -hmm. And they all are very appreciative of that. And she said, you know, two things, one, Thank you for making you know me, me look good, and I want you to know that I, you got this feedback. and two, I want you to know what I said to him, which was great to hear because I took a risk on these guys because I've known Zach for a while. I knew him in another life. I knew him as a PR guy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and what stood out to me and is and is that he's sought out partners that are very different than him, right and and there's this type of sort of energy enthusiasm and agility to what they do and she was pretty confident but but we were selected over like big agencies that have that that you know that are tied to the biggest media holding companies in the world and you have little value creation labs llc whose official business is sort of tied to my home address in Beverly, Massachusetts. Like we're, we're a small business. And so that was pretty cool. And I think, you know, it's a good lesson. I think for listeners, like agility wins in the modern world and, and true, like real agility um, and, and flexibility and will, you know, a willingness to, 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 to be, to be so, and not be so beholden to a plan or sort of like a box of, of activities or a scope of work that is agreed upon um, in the in the you know beginning of a relationship
1: right and it's also to understanding what the term value really means and I think you and I agree that that terms evolved over time but if you can really understand the value that your client wants and it, of course it gets to value you and I could do a whole <laughs> another episode on value proposition but Understanding that and having a really meaningful conversation around what is value from the client's eyes, Mm -hmm. not not yourself, not your top line revenue. Now, all that's important, but it's really got to be the more enduring thing is the value as it's perceived by the client.
0: It is. And and we aligned on this ahead of the conversation today in terms of like the concept of like value. And like, one question I do get, and I get it from prospective clients, and, and at times based on how this conversation unfolds. It reveals itself to be not a good fit. Because the reality is, first of all, to measure value, I and my team, we need to know like what's gonna drive the needle forward for the business. Like, how will this business not thrive from and in and, and in business you thrive through revenue, through revenue growth. And so I think generally speaking, brand, public relations, and to a lesser extent marketing, you can measure a little bit more in some like account based marketing, and whatnot, but especially in brand and awareness, like tougher things to measure. So what we like to measure us and, and also not the only things we help with. So what we like to say is we want to be measured based on the company's growth while we're tied to it. Like mm-hmm. we like and one of the most critical comp- components of a modern business is its brand and how it shows up in the world like what it's saying when it shows up in the world, what it looks like when it shows up in the world. And so we like the top, but whatever those specific sort of business goals are, those re- those business critical sort of like revenue goals, that's what we'll align ourselves to. And that's what we'll hold ourselves accountable to.
1: You mentioned earlier about the BCL Consortium. And I'd also know too, you've got a roster of some really striking talent. You've got Tyler Scholl, Chris Cardoza, Frank Sinton, Justin Bingham, who uh, actually worked with Tim Berners-Lee, who was the inventor of the World Wide Web. So you've got some a one top notch talent, yeah, and then this the the notion of the consortium helps you bring in. I'm gonna I'm gonna call it like almost like just in time talent. Does
0: mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Like, and I've been. This is my second go at it. I've built a consortium before and did that when I was out in Los Angeles. And so consortium is an interesting concept for me. It's a it's a dynamic group of people that offer entirely different skill sets, and whose only connection is the consortium itself and in a lot of ways, I just described myself. If, if you heard my brother's best man speech at my wedding, he was like, there's people in this room and we, and we've been hearing it's actual life. Oh wow. Like you all like, who's the, who's the person that brought all these people together? Cause like, right. you got like, you got hardcore kids, athletes and like nerds which i'm honestly like a nerd that sometimes looks like an athlete but i'm i'm an, i'm a nerd hey, like you have this like weird like interesting mix of people that's to me a consortium a great consortium sort of has just eclectic bunch of people has right. artists people that don't like to use cell phones people who are digital wizards all of it. And so my, so like, I like to say, I've been developing a consortium my entire life. I, I had visions in my mind when I was in middle school, going into high school. And I was like, Oh, these people in my life, they're so special. They're so gifted. They do such interesting things. My buddy, Justin just tested off the charts. He's going to Phillips Academy and over like, he's just going to do amazing things and different things than I'll ever do. And my intention at a, as an eighth grader was like, I'm going to find ways to work with Justin. I'm going to find ways to work with Mark and work with this person and work with Sarah, work with, with, with Annie, you name it. And that's just been this like natural intention in me. And and so how that's manifested like in the present day is I found some like minds to partner with me at BCL that have completely different, like hard skill sets. Like my, our creative director, director, Tyler Scholl, he's a creative savant, really. He can build Brands. He like he can he can design he can he can design just about anything. He can he can create really complex custom animations. He's he's launched and built brands. He's gone and worked at Fidelity, designing much of the doing user experience design and designing like products for like one of the most valuable companies in in Greater Boston um, and some of the most mission critical critical aspects of the product they deliver, which is their like mobile banking solution. And so. Having all these, so having some like minds with different skill sets and different networks that similarly think like me, the last year has been amazing because I'm not the only one that's saying, oh, I got the person for this. One of the projects we're on right now, Tyler was like, I have this lovely woman I went to college with, Amory, and I think she'd be a perfect fit for this project. I had never met her before, but I couldn't wait. And I met her. And after one conversation, I was like, she's amazing. So we had like a nice one-on-one. I was like, how much projects do you have? Do you want to work with us? Short story, after a couple months, we've been been working together smoothly for a couple months. She's getting married later this month. In September, she's ramping up more to work with us on projects. She's just so lovely. And she's a great collaborator. So me, the power networker with hundreds of people on my network, like that, it's not always it's not just a me thing so i want to make that clear too I think a great consortium has like just like-minded individuals like kind of just like bring into the mix their their um kind of dynamic range of sort of friends that they've met professionally in my case there are a lot of friends I had first that just developed into really interesting professionals so uh,
1: experts yeah. and, and you also want your consortium to to be multi-threaded as well, to your point. You don't want everything to be leading back to one person.
0: That's right. Yeah, that's right. And it can, and this is kind of comes back to the agility where like the clients, really the partners, because like the ones that really are a good fit, they end up signing like a two-year contract with us. And they'll see the value in Zach and Tyler, and maybe one or two other people in the consortium that are like, going to be core to the solution we're going to offer them as a baseline and then they see the value in the vcl consortium yeah and they and then further we come up with like a cost structure that's a little bit lesser than typical and almost comparable to like a, a pr point solution but you get all these solutions. all
1: this you get all
0: and this. Yeah, so it's like you get all these solutions for the same or less price. Like, it, like this is a really competitive solution when you can comp- when you look at the, all the different agency solutions we compete with. And then we'll get a little equity vesting schedule. We'll go on. So now it's like we're locked in for two years. We're helping the company reduce burn and not need certain roles. And then at times quarter, it's like this quarter we're, for a company at the end of this year, we want to activate an analyst program to create. An analyst report to do a business development effort with all their key channel partners. So what we're going to do is we're going to flex our analyst group, which did that cybersecurity report for for Boston not too long ago, and we're going to bring that solution in for a quarter. Right. And then we're gonna pull that back. And then maybe the next quarter after that, maybe we'll ramp up video production. And that's where Chris Cardoza comes in. And then we're gonna do some really interesting video work. And he's doing work for ICA watershed and TB twelve. He's on another level. Nice. But again, he we we vibe and connect at a at a human level and he, and and it benefit and, and some of the some of the best like talent, most talented people. I'm trying not to call people talent. Tyler has told me like makes people feel like you know, it, it, like it's almost not human. So it's like the talented people yeah. I found they're they work like this. Folks like Chris Cardoza, they, uh, we're very, very similar minded. He's got his own business. He's got a few clients that just need his like expertise and ability to produce videos. But he also, his ability to scale is limited because he doesn't have partners. And so he's plugged into VCL and now he's a partner and he's still running his business. Right. But now he's like bringing us into TB12 brainstorms and ICA watershed calls, while we're bringing him into an activation with one of the projects we're on at BCL. And so that's like an example of like those names you mentioned and like how, like how they apply through this sort of consortium
1: model. And it's a very efficient way to work as well, too. And I mean efficient in the best possible way, too. Right? So yeah. People come in exactly when they're needed. Execute and then pull out and move on to the, move on to the, the next project. You referenced yeah. uh, your analyst group. So I know you did a 2022 cybersecurity report. You looked out on Massachusetts and what you saw was pretty encouraging in terms of the, the money flowing into cybersecurity.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think it's interesting. If you take a bigger step back, it's like, what are the big some of the most biggest, most important categories of technology and, and where innovation is required and rapid innovation is required and cybersecurity is one of them. So to be a growing sort of center for cybersecurity innovation is is particularly promising for Massachusetts. I don't think it's surprising. Um, but yeah, I mean, just as an example, like in 2021, 2.2 billion was invested. In Massachusetts based cybersecurity companies, and that's up from 320 million the year prior. Wow. So, when you're looking at pretty substantial growth, I think that's what, six, seven X? That's, 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 and it's, and it's like that across some other industries. Like, we, we actually, I helped do a report prior to that one on robotics and micro location robotics is a subsector of robotics that is basically responsible for all the innovation in transportation. Um, around the globe, Boston has the most micro location robotics startups in, right now in, in, in the entire world. So, yeah, so I've just been very in- encouraged by some of the work our analyst team's done because as a journalist by heart, I went to Boston University College Communication, plenty of journalism training there. It's, it's not the best economics and it's tough days for publishing and for journalism. So deep dive qualitative journalism is a little more rare to find than it was in the beginning of my career in the 2000s. And so one sort of it's more it's 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 as much purposeful for us as anything. I mean, our our analyst business generates some revenue, but it's it, it could break even. and 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 I've done a report that has. And that's OK, because. It's valuable for VCL to be connected to valuable knowledge that gets in the right knowledge that gets out to, to sort of educate people in a market, and it ends up marketing VCL. And so it's a, it's a, it's an interesting component of our business, and one that I think we treat differently. And sort of how we treat, I would say, Boston speaks up as well.
1: Two two thoughts there. First, anyone listening that's thinking of a career pivot, they might want to consider cybersecurity. And the other thing too is these in depth reports that you do help you position talent in terms of the consortium. So if you see something's coming down the pike, let's say cybersecurity, then that's probably your aha moment to say, okay, in my larger professional personal network, who is it that's the cybersecurity subject matter experts and getting them engaged? So that, that makes great sense.
0: Well, actually, on that point, one of the companies, a little bit more mature, not as mature as the education company, just in the sense that like, they just got a Series A round. Hmm. Cybersecurity business to protect against wire fraud in real estate transactions, which is a wildly underserved market. And a buddy of mine that's the CEO of that business saw the VCL launch and saw the cybersecurity report and he reached out to us. And they were obviously qualified for us because good relationship, cybersecurity. So yeah, I think you hit on something there too, which there is... it, It helps us sort of map our North Star kind of Mm -hmm. ideal business partner understanding and because there's only so much time and there's only so many companies we can work with. Right,
1: exactly. So your assessment of the startup community in Boston, how are things?
0: It's great. I think that it's sort of coming back up to what reminds me of what it was like in the late 2000s. If folks listening are familiar with like when Bostino was brand new, and Mashable was like pretty new and Pete Cashmore had one of the biggest Twitter handles and like Bostono was essentially the Mashable for Boston and it was like eating the Globe and Herald's like tech coverage lunch
1: yeah. and it
0: was it was outflanking Boston Business Journal and then they launched in a couple other cities and American City Business Journals had to acquire Austin So well was doing. I bring all that up because at that time in the 2000s, it was very community driven. Like I, I met my wife, I, li- I laid eyes on my wife for the first time at a Boston meetup, 2009, 2010. I should know that for sure. It's actually, it was, was 2000 Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, we'll, yeah. I'll, yeah. I'm
1: going to make a note to help you after this. Yeah, there
0: you go. Um, and it, what's interesting about sort of Boston then and the Boston that I came back to in like 2018, you know, after being in LA for five years is plenty of community players. Staple community players are like Silicon Valley Bank.
1: Mm-hmm. They
0: invest a ton in nurturing the community, supporting the community. Disparate pockets of community nurture from venture capital firms like Underscore VC, they do a really good job. But by and large, the community seemed to like not have that buzz. And then the pandemic hit. But what I'm seeing coming out of the pandemic is a couple companies that came in and started only in the last five years, like Venture Lane, Christian Moggle. I, I, I had him on the Boston Speaks Up podcast. He met a Boston girl from Germany, ran a big telecom company in Australia met a boston girl so we ended up in boston. He started Venture Lane. Venture Lane is a very specific startup hub, curates B2B businesses that have about 25 at a time. They come in and they like work out of the space. So it's like one part to put it super lightly, one part like a WeWork model, mm-hmm. but then also like a hands-on IRL like in-person accelerator that provides tons of intensive support. To the 25 startups that are core to to venture lane, and then also invites in. An ecosystem and has like additional memberships and services for companies outside that core 25. Venture Lane is a fascinating model. I encourage anyone to look it up and see what they're doing. It is a it is it, there will be more venture lanes in the future, and that and and what you're seeing is Venture Lane plugging in with Silicon Valley Bank, and you're seeing First Republic Bank come in, and they're plugging in with Venture Lane, and they're plugging in with Underscore VC, and you're seeing a lot more banks, VCs, startup studios, tech stars, Boston's getting involved with these same groups I'm talking about. So you're seeing Scrubius, which is helping sort of underrepresented people and founders get the support they don't typically have. And you're seeing them all collaborate with each other. And so I'm, in addition to just seeing like the the macroeconomics, like tons, you know, billions of dollars going into cybersecurity in Boston, like that's great for the ecosystem. But for me, why this ecosystem thrives, it's the talented people and it's the community. And Boston is the best small big city that I've been in for tech. You know, I've gone to Austin and I've not lived there, but I've gone to Austin enough. I've spent a ton of time in LA. I lived there for five years and I spent a ton of time in San Francisco because I basically lived there for a year. And I spent a lot of time in Seattle. All good communities in their own right. Boston's small enough mm-hmm. where when the when the community is bubbling like it is right now, it's the best place to be on the planet if you want to get into tech and not necessarily tech, if you want to build a company, because there's a lot of interesting companies. There's even some brick and mortar companies and some, some interesting commerce businesses being built in Boston that aren't necessarily like tech first businesses. not saying, you know, COVID is completely gone and nor will it be. Um, But as we've kind of gotten to a place where everyone's back in the world, uh, I I see Boston thriving and I see it thriving for honestly decades to come.
1: And you see, you have your own podcast, Boston Speaks Up. So you're, you're seeing this in, in that endeavor as well, too. Tell me a little bit about your podcast.
0: Yeah. So it's I always want to be connecting with people, getting to know them. And when I moved back from LA, I identify I'm a podcaster. I like learning through podcasts. I like particularly enjoy learning about people that intrigue me through a podcast. For example... Michael Casson, founder of MediaLink, which sold to Essential for seventy million dollars a few years ago. Basically, it's like a consortium model uh, in the media industry. So you can imagine why I'm intrigued by it. What's the number one thing I did half a decade ago when I was really finding myself uh, interested in Michael Casson's career? I googled Michael Casson podcast, any podcast he had been on and has been on. I've listened to. It's an opportunity to just have it like. Be a fly on the wall to an authentic conversation with interesting people, and if and and so sometimes you can just target. You know, sometimes it's just the specific person, and you find different podcasts they're on, or or sometimes you like the 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 host and and what they're you know how the how they facilitate dialogue. I thought that it would be interesting to to bring that kind of mindset to a podcast in Boston, and not just visit with business people. I've talked to educators. I've, I've had you on the podcast. I've talked to folks in higher education. I've talked to people at Dearborn STEM Academy uh, in Dorchester. I've talked to Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins. I've talked to uh, Kim Driscoll, Stella, a
1: friend of mine, Mass, yeah.
0: Mayor yeah. Kim Kim Driscoll. Yeah. And so and, and then folks that are on sort of social um, impact missions and the VCs and the banks and the ones that I see collaborating. And so in a lot of ways, it's kind of helped bolster my ability to to have a more dynamic consortium because I, I know all these amazing people from all these right. different places. But what I love about it most and why I'll do it forever, and maybe it will always be called Boston Speaks Up, who knows, but there will probably always be a podcast where I'm letting the mic rip with, with a friend or a new friend, getting to know them. And and my style is definitely to, to spend a little extra time getting to know their backstory. Um, and I'm particularly drawn to having guests who... Have maybe triumphed over some challenges in that backstory, and just humanizing these successful, inspiring people that are on these you know perceived perches in whatever industry they're in, and just pulling back the veil and make and making it you know and, and helping folks be able to relate more to the successful people in with or without connections to Boston, and it doesn't it doesn't just have to be people in Boston, so. Yeah, it's been amazing, and I'm 80 episodes in and not slowing down anytime soon.
1: Nice. And my feeling on podcasts, if you walk away with one gem, it's been worth the time listening to podcasts. I mean, you almost always learn one thing. So um, I know that uh, this fall, there's something special for you coming up in October. What is that? Oh, going to disney world You're going to disney. <laughs> <laughs> yep. how does that
0: feel it feels good so yeah it, it shouldn't come as any surprise that this morning we were watching cinderella our daughter lost her second tooth and the tooth fairy came this morning which she was excited about so she was up pretty early so we actually watched cinderella this morning before summer camp um so she's really excited about disney world we're making sure we watch all the uh all the princess movies she's over indexed on on the frozen movies because she loves elsa and anna um but yeah if, you know my wife and i have haven't been to disney world much in our lives we went to disneyland together when we were um living in la but this is the first time we'll take our daughter and we uh revealed that to her last week and she's she's very excited
1: and is there such a thing as too much frozen movies i don't know
0: no there isn't it's, it's <laughs> just that it's 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 interesting the um there's just like Encanto came out and like we finally got to go see Encanto we're like look it's Frozen's great but it's like it's very like it's kind of a little dull it's very blue and it's like Encanto's like all these colors and like look how beautiful this is but it is I was talking to Tyler our creative director about this it's a little difficult to get our daughter to watch the older Disney movies because of the uh, engaging quality of modern disney oh, movies. Oh interesting. Yes. So like she was like I don't want to watch Cinderella. I don't want to watch Cinderella and she just like wasn't like getting pulled into it, but once the narrative pulled her in. And I know this is something you talk about a lot. So look at I'm pulling it right back to work. <laughs> narrative pulled her in. So like the the sort of creative visual storytelling is inferior to modern day storytelling, but the narrative, the story that hooked her in. And then she got hooked, and she was and she was sold. But she was fighting it at first because of what she saw. Right. But when she started to hear the story being told, she was
1: hooked. Yeah. Shout out to all of our entrepreneurs. You've got to have a great story. So, <laughs> speaking of uh, story, I know that both you and your wife, by the way, are very involved in the community. Your wife is involved in the animal welfare at mm-hmm. the North Shore Animal Shelter, right? Yep. And you've got a daughter. So let's fast forward. In terms of narrative, if you had access to a time capsule, when your daughter turns 21, what story would you want there to be in that time capsule for her?
0: Well, I'll have to think about the story a little bit as I go. Um, And I will say, I did think about this. And like I know one thing I definitely want to share with her. And I think this will maybe spark like an example. But for me, I would say Mila love yourself be proud of being you and when you misstep because we all do be accountable and own it that's a part of being true to yourself you'll be even more proud of yourself for having done so the reality is this is how you live a happy life because being proud of yourself and loving yourself and doing you in your most authentic form that's the key to success mm-hmm. so i just tell her love yourself always you're one Always take actions that best reflect your amazing self. You're amazing. I love you. It would be overwhelming. That would be my overwhelming message to her. The story I'd probably share with her is just one of my many failures. In times when I was a young manager and I let people down, I was managing. I mean, I was 26, managing 23, 24-year-olds that were like, I think maybe a 25 year old, like folks that were one, two years younger than me. I was hanging out with them outside the office, having drinks. I was like being cozy with them. But then when they needed them to do stuff, I was like, Hey, you need to do stuff. I was at a young, at a young age, getting elevated a lot at agencies. I really uh, took a lot of missteps in my management of young people. And I had to own that early on in my career. I had to own those failures. And those are just some of the many failures that I've had that have helped me become a better person. And, yeah. and they've humbled me a lot too. So I'd probably share some of that with her as well.
1: Oh, you're a great dad. She's lucky to have you. And notice you. I said when she turns 21, right? So well, yeah. <laughs> dad might want like 40 or something. Like yeah. That. <laughs>
0: right. And if I want to give her a story that involves like alcohol or something, yeah, right? or which she's dating, not allowed to have till she's that. 25. Yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's been great talking with you, Zach. I really, really appreciate our friendship and look forward to Uh, seeing you in person very soon.
0: Yeah, let's do it. You'll have to let me know next time you're in Beverly. And it's always a pleasure. And your friendship means a lot to me. and, And thank you for having me on the podcast.